Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Hey, I got to say something. Georgia, you people are amazing. Um, Early voting and absentee ballots continue to pour in. And as of yesterday, according to the Secretary of State's office, 3.2 million of you have now cast your ballots. If you compare that uh, to uh, what we saw in the 2016, the last presidential election, we had 4.1, 4. I think, one or so million Georgians who voted in that election. So uh, you're moving in an amazing direction, and we still have uh, today, tomorrow, and Friday for early votes. Now, I, I do want to make a point that's really important right now, though. According to the Secretary of State's office, uh, as of yesterday, some 500,000 absentee uh, votes are still not in the county offices. Now, some of them, we don't know what may have happened, whether or not you never got a ballot that you said you were going to get. We've been hearing from some people that that's the case. But if you're among the people who does have an absentee ballot and you have not sent it in yet, it's really too late to put it in the mail. You're going to have to take it to a drop box and use that to uh, secure your vote. But but Raffensperger, Brad Raffensperger is saying, don't mail it at this point. You cannot count on it being delivered by the deadline of 7 o'clock on election night. And the other important point to make about that is if, in fact, you've, just, you've now received an absentee ballot, you're worried about getting it to the county office on time, you can vote in person. You have to, if you take your absentee ballot with you to the polling place, or even if you don't have it, you can go in. They will, when they check you off, see that you've requested an absentee ballot, and they will then convert it to an in-person vote. So just a little public service announcement about the fact that with the extraordinary turnout that we've had, um, we want to make sure everybody gets their vote counted. And as always, you can look at uh, the My Voter page on the Secretary of State's website to see where whether your ballot has now been counted. Um, all right, so we're going to continue talking about voting in the days ahead with uh, Election Day now next Tuesday, less than a week away. But today we're going to turn our focus to health care issues that uh, are really crucial to how people are voting in 2020. To do that, we've got our uh, good friend Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who joins us today. Kevin, glad to have you with us today. It's good to be with you, Bill, and I know that you are a modest man, but I wanted some listeners knew that the Washington Post has named you among the Georgia political reporters to follow. And so I wanted to congratulate you on that. Um, you're, you are joined by a GBB yeah. Stephen Fowler on that list, as well as the AJCs, Tia Mitchell, Maya Prabhu, Mark Nisi, and Greg Bluestein. So all of those yeah, folks well, affiliated with your show, of which you should be proud. Well, speaking only for myself, 
All I can say is more fake news from the Washington Post. But anyhow, Uh-oh. I'm glad Uh-oh. you're you're here, Kevin. <laughs> we're we're also joined today by uh, your colleague from uh, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, Ariel Hart, who is the health policy reporter for the AJC. How are you doing, Ariel? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bill. Glad to have you. Uh, And we're joined by Andy Miller, the CEO and editor of Georgia Health News, the online publication that focuses like a laser on health issues in the state every day. Hi, Andy. Thanks for being with us. It's great to be here, Bill. There's a lot going on in health and health care for sure. And we will talk about a bunch of it as the show proceeds today. So those are the journalists on the panel today. And we're also very happy to be joined again by uh, Dr. Harry Hyman, who is a clinical associate professor at the School of Public Health at Georgia State University, and who's been a leading voice among public health experts since the beginning of the pandemic here in Georgia in speaking out about how he feels about the way the state has been handling the virus. Uh, Harry, it's been a while since we've had you on the show. I'm really glad you're back today. How are you holding up? How are things going for you? Well, for me personally, Bill, everything's going great. Thanks for asking. Uh, I think for us as a state and us as a country, uh, not so well. Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, let me let me start by looking at the latest numbers. We haven't done this for some time. Um But Ariel, the AJC, of course, publishes a COVID-19 dashboard every day. And um, I'm looking at the most recent reporting, which is as of yesterday, and I see there are 1,623 newly reported cases as of yesterday, the seven-day rolling average, 1,597. Um, Deaths are, uh, I think, continuing to trend a bit down. We had reports of uh, 18 deaths as of yesterday. I won't even go, and we can go into hospitalizations at some point, but I want to start with you, Ariel, and then give everybody a chance to weigh in. What should we make of the current figures about COVID-19 in Georgia? Ariel, you go first. Yeah, the pandemic is still going strong, and it's hard to um, make any particular uh, conclusion about any one day's numbers. We have to remember that deaths follow hospitalizations by a couple of weeks and that hospitalizations follow new cases by uh, a week or two. But I mean, mean, just basically the pandemic is still very much with us. We still have flare-ups. We still have a lot of people dying and we still have, um, you know, we we still have a lot of people suffering uh, from the disease. Harry, what do you make as a doctor of these numbers as you look at them? You know, I feel like my, my, my new nickname is going to be Dr. Doom and Gloom. But, but the, the fact is we're, we're at another really dangerous point. Um, I think it's really important for people to recognize that we as a state have plateaued at a very high level of cases and hospitalizations. We, for the past several months, averaged between 15 and 20 hospitals uh, including major hospitals in the Atlanta metro area that have been on critical care bypass, meaning that all of their ICU beds and, and, and critical care beds are full. Um, and we're, we're now at a point where our cases over the past three weeks have increased about 30%. That's not counting the antigen testing, which we haven't integrated in there yet. If we add those in, uh, there's probably another 20,000 cases that we haven't accounted for. Um, and 
while the hospitalization rate hasn't started going up yet, and, and predictably it will, um, the number of people in the hospital uh, has gone up over the last few weeks uh, from about 1,200 to 1,400. Um, so again, as, as Ariel said, um, both hospitalization and um, death are lagging indicators. You know, the sequence is cases go up, um, followed several weeks later by hospitalization, followed several weeks later by, by death. And that's what we're seeing nationally. Um, nationally, we're seeing um, a 14% increase in deaths. Um, we're, we're seeing over the last month uh, a 40% increase in hospitalization. That, that is now mirroring the 40% increase in, in cases. And the kind of challenges we're seeing now in the upper Midwest and Western states are coming to Georgia. And in the absence of serious action on the part of our leaders, it's, it's, it's not going to be pretty. Andy, uh, Georgia Health News, you reported uh, uh, recently that uh, we're seeing a spike of cases in uh, middle Georgia, I think around the Macon area. And then you also reported on a USA, a USA Today story that lists five Georgia counties as among the top 10 in death rates per capita in the United States. Talk about uh, both of those for a second here. Well, Bill, I think we're seeing the virus erupt in all over the state, really. Uh, you know, I just recently uh, this week, we saw that the Rome City schools have shut down and gone virtual because of the number of cases among students, employees. Same thing in Richmond County, Augusta. Uh, yeah, middle Georgia, south Georgia, it, all over the state. It just it just varies in terms of what day we're talking about. Uh, on the USA Today list, yeah, five of the top 10 uh, counties for the highest death rate from COVID are in Georgia. They're all rural counties. They are all uh, have a lot of poverty. And uh, one of their themes of the USA Today reporting is the fact that in those counties, most of them have a majority of their population being people of color. So this sets the table for a conversation about how COVID-19 plays into politics right now to the last days before Election Day. Uh, Kevin, uh, yesterday, of course, uh, Joe Biden made what many people thought was a very unusual stop in Georgia at this stage in the race, believing that it's still possible that Georgia's in play. I want to pl play for you, Kevin, uh, just one of the comments that uh, Biden made about COVID-19, and then we'll uh, uh, talk about it in the context of the election campaign. Here's Biden. In the spring, the president declared, says, commander-in-chief, he was going to wage war on the virus. Instead, he shrugged, he swaggered, and he surrendered. And then his chief of staff just last week made a stunning admission, saying, quote, we're not going to control the pandemic, end of quote. It's a capitulation. It's a waving of a white flag. It's a window into the shocking truth about this White House that they've never really tried. Well, I'm here to tell you, we can and we will control this virus. As president, I will never wave the white flag of surrender. So that's part of Joe Biden's closing argument. He made those remarks down in Warm Springs at the uh, Little White House uh, yesterday. Uh, and Kevin, in contrast, 
Here is a tweet that Amelia Brock just spotted from uh, Donald Trump. It's part of what he's been saying as he closes out his argument for why he should be reelected. Here's the quote. COVID, COVID, COVID is the unified chant of the fake news lamestream media. They will ask about nothing else until November 4th when the election will be hopefully over. Then the talk will be about how low the death rate is, plenty of hospital rooms, and many tests of young people. Uh, Kevin, the contrast in terms of voter choices on this subject could not be starker. Well, clearly the, the political sides, you know, have picked their places on the Democratic side. Talk about it as much as you can, share as many statistics as you can, make it clear. And, and frankly, some of the statistics are stunning. I mean, we've got almost 8,000 deaths in Georgia during this pandemic. So if you sort of consider it more or less started in March, that's a, almost 1,000 people a month. I mean, if anything were killing 1,000 people a month in Georgia under any other circumstances, it would be the biggest biggest story in the state every day, no matter what. And then on the Republican side, it's become talk about anything else. And in the rare instance that you talk about the virus, talk about how you can't make the cure. In other words, the, the potential shutdown, the potential of not sending kids to school, that can't be worse than the disease itself. So the battle lines are drawn. And I, I mean, you can almost predict what everyone's going to say every day. Um. Andy, how do you think that the president's uh, efforts to downplay the virus are landing uh, with, uh, let's talk Georgia voters particularly. We know based on polling by a number of news organizations, including the most recent poll from the AJC, that there are, Biden and Trump are in a dead heat here right now. So how big an issue is this and what, what, what impact do you think it's having on the race? I think it's a very big issue. I think there's a lot of Georgians who are going into the voting booth or mailing in their ballot who are who are voting as with COVID being their, their number one issue. And uh, I can't see it being a positive for the president uh, in most cases. Uh, you know, people are uh, one thing that's driving this early vote is uh, I, I think it's Georgians uh, have made up their mind, uh, and uh, it's touched everybody's life, uh, this disease. Uh, everybody has had to change uh, what they do. And, and uh, if you have small kids, whether they're going to school, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, this, there's just been a tremendous impact on people's lives. And, and, and they don't want to hear, I think most Georgians don't want to hear the fact that, hey, it's just around the corner that we're going, you know, we're getting to be just around the corner. Uh, you know, that's a long corner that we're on right now. Yeah, I, Area I way can in. certainly, yeah, I can certainly agree with that. Um, we're, we're constantly barraged with news from both campaigns, but most, all, all of the democratic messaging is about COVID. And I, and I think it's really, um, it, it's a, it, they almost don't have to try. There are people in the state who hold the opposite view. I have a neighbor who was down in South Georgia last week and, um, you know, um, ran into a lot of people who thought she was part of a conspiracy for wearing a mask. But um, just in general, it's been such a strong influencer in people's lives, and they can see the um, they can see the events roll out in front of them on the news, and um, they have you know very strong opinions about how it's being handled. 
You know, I, I would say that it, it's not a surprise that uh, given the impact across every corner of our country that this has become a, a political issue, but we've also never seen a public health crisis that has been politicized, uh, both both in the way it's been talked about and the way it's been mismanaged, um, like this uh, pandemic. Um, and, and I think that that carries over into the political campaigns. But I think, as as others have said, I think if you can step back from the from the politics and the rhetoric and look at the data, that the data really speaks for itself. I mean, the the United States um, is a um, outstanding negative outlier uh, in terms of, of our results with COVID. I mean, to, the, the fact that um, we represent less than 5% of the, the world population and yet have 20% of the, of the COVID deaths uh, is, is unacceptable uh, by, by any measure. Um, and I think the, the arguments that have filled the political space, this kind of dichotomy between um, responding to the economic crisis versus responding to the public health crisis, even most economists recognize that unless we appropriately respond to the public health crisis, um, there's no way to sustainably reopen the economy and address the social crisis. Um, even the head of the, 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 the Federal Reserve Bank has said that. You know, I think Harry makes a good point, Bill, in that on the Republican side, the issue has been framed of it's either uh, save the economy or, or shut it down to, to uh, fight the virus. And, and I think public health experts, including people up the street at the CDC, could tell you that, that that's a false dichotomy. Um, but, you know, when you go back to our poll, 51% of people overall think Biden would handle the coronavirus better. But when you dig into the numbers, they, they're alarming. I mean, Republicans, 91% of them believe Trump would handle it better. And Democrats, 96% of them believe that Biden would handle it better. So it's, it's totally politicized. And it, it also breaks along racial lines. I mean, 63% of white people believe Trump would handle it better. And only 5% of black people think he would handle it better. So nothing, I mean, it's amazing that a virus could become so political polarizing, but that's exactly what's happened in Georgia. So, uh, uh, let's okay, Andy. Why don't you jump in, and, and and then I'll go ahead and ask you about Joe Biden's plan. But go ahead, Andy. Well, just the simple uh, act of wearing a mask uh, being politicized is uh, is startling to to anybody that uh, is in public health, and it must be startling to people who are on the front lines in hospitals and clinics fighting this disease. Uh, but wearing a mask is, is, is not expensive. It's an easy thing to do, yet, uh, as Ariel said, th there's, there's a lot of people who actually resent people for wearing masks. Okay, so I want to pick up on that and talk about where Joe Biden is going with coronavirus. Uh, there, are, there, are, we've for months people have been highly critical of the president's response to coronavirus, although as Kevin points out there there are any number of people and Ariel's got a neighbor who think that you know the that Trump's been just fine when it comes to the virus. But here's the question, Andy. Uh, starting with masks, Joe Biden has kind of had to be careful about how he talks about mask wearing. Um, he 
wants to set an example that will encourage all people to wear masks, but he too has been very cautious about the notion that he would have a national mandate for wearing masks. So just start with that simple uh, concern, and then we'll expand and talk a little more about the broader issues with uh, the Joe Biden plan. Andy, first you on the mask question. Well, a national requirement to wear one. I mean, Dr. Anthony Fauci talked about it on CNN recently. and, and, uh, And, you know, it would almost be impossible to enforce but it, it, it's a notion that, um, you know, if you're out there, if you're in a public building uh, wearing one, uh, I think it shows respect for other people. Uh, and, and certainly it prevents disease. And so while I think the idea uh, it, it could be something that Biden does, I, I think it would be very difficult to enforce. I mean, are you going to find somebody for not wearing one? That, that'll be difficult. But it's an interesting concept. So that's a Ariel? Yeah, um, I think he may have mentioned um, a desire for a mandate in the first debate. But obviously what Andy says is right. You couldn't enforce it, or at least it would be difficult to enforce it in the sense of, you know, I don't know, fining or locking somebody up. But that's not what we've seen in the jurisdictions that have had mandates. I remember Savannah talked about it as um, uh, being helpful that the officers would carry masks with them. And if they see someone without a mask, give them a mask. Um, Biden has talked about it as a patriotic duty to wear a mask. And I think from my perspective, um, just looking at how people might take it, it, it's almost as if the messaging would be the most important part. You know, right now we've got folks who have, it's been reinforced to them that it is their right not to wear a mask. And, you know, it's hard to imagine during World War II in a uh, air raid blackout, someone saying it's my right to turn on the lights. Well, maybe it is, but the messaging might be different around it with Biden. Harry? I, I think I think that things like mask mandates um, are critical public health tools along with other things to help uh, uh, create social norms and move behavior in in the right direction. Uh, Just like seatbelt laws, I mean, no, we we don't have traffic stops where where we check to see who's wearing a seatbelt or like the legislation Georgia passed around texting while driving. We understand that just telling people to do something is different from actually having a, a, a legal mandate um, whether it's fully enforced or not. But I think that the most critical thing to talk about in terms of the, the Biden plan versus kind of the, the absence of, of, of any kind of uh, consistent, comprehensive, uh, or coordinated plan from the current administration is that Joe Biden, I think, has been very clear that he will be guided by the public health experts. Um, I think the fact that we are in the middle of a unprecedented, historic, devastating pandemic, and we have politically undermined our uh, federal public health agency down the street, the CDC, where we have the preeminent world experts that we should be turning to and relying on, and and instead we're undermining them at every opportunity. Um, It's just stunning. And I think just the mere um, recognition that we need to lean into their expertise and rely on their expertise, as we have with Ebola uh, and every other crisis up to this point, um, I I think is a critical uh, fork in the road that we need to take. 
Uh, Ariel, I, we're going to have to get to a break in a minute. But before we do, I just want to uh, throw out here, we're not going to take the time because it's a detailed plan to go into what Joe Biden's uh, plan is for coronavirus. People who want to see it, why don't we post a link to the Joe Biden website where they lay out the plan in great detail. But I think, Ariel, the most basic thing we can say about it is that Biden favors a federal response and wants the federal government to have a major role to play in addressing the virus. Whereas, of course, we know that the Trump administration has handed off its responsibilities to state after state and claims that that's been a more effective way to do with it. Is that a deal with it? Is that a, a, a good generalization about the plan? Exactly. You know, and, and some folks would look at that and say what it really means is that the federal government would engage um, the the uh, throughout the plan, what you see over and over again is leaning on um, national messaging, national experts, national tools. Kevin, um, I'm going to turn to you uh, on, on this next point uh, uh, for a second here before we do uh, get to our break. Um, when you look at your polling numbers on the coronavirus, when you see, as you pointed out before, that there's a significant percentage of people that are perfectly happy with the way Trump has handled things, um, and more important, when they say President Trump is going to be better when reelected in dealing with this crisis than Joe Biden would be, is there a certain kind of odd irony there? The president has had the opportunity to deal with the virus for the last seven plus months. To me, that's very surprising because as any leader knows, whether you're leading a large organization, a small organization, a newsroom, or a whole country, um, you know, inevitably you're faced with problems and crises. And the first duty of a leader is to paint a picture of what the what the future needs to look like and then enlist uh, uh, people into getting to that future. The Trump uh, has never really put forth a plan other than to say it's going to go away and in his way reassure his followers that everything is fine. It's a it's an approach that you almost never see because most leaders are just compelled to paint a future to which they want to lead the people who are part of their organization, their country, their constituency. And the fact that... Um, it's, well, we'll let each state do what it does. Well, public health experts, I mean, no one recommends that. I mean, the virus doesn't get to the Savannah River along I-20 and say, all right, well, you know, now that we're in South Carolina, well, the virus should will do different things. I mean, it makes no sense to 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 have state uh, states lead because the virus knows no boundaries. All right, Kevin Riley, you get the last word in the first segment of Political Rewind. There are certainly other health issues that are uh, essentially on the ballot as people head out to vote either early or next Tuesday. We'll talk about some of them when we come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Georgia State's Dr. Harry Hyman, Georgia Health News, uh, Andy Miller, Ariel Hart, AJC Health Policy Reporter, and Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the AJC, are all here. Uh, we're talking, of course, about uh, health care issues and uh, the election. Uh, by the way, if there's any question as to how important coronavirus is right now with November 3rd approaching, uh, news is just reporting as we do this show on Wednesday morning. The Dow Industrials have fallen since the starting bell already more than 600 points as concerns about rising coronavirus cases are sending investors towards safer assets. We'll see how that develops because, of course, President Trump uh, points to the stock market as uh, his example of how the economy is thriving uh, under his tenure as president. Um, let, let's turn to uh, uh, the, the Affordable Care Act. A- Andy, let me start with you on this. Um, Amy Coney Barrett, of course, now joins the Supreme Court, and uh, she will, we'll see whether she decides to do it or not, have the opportunity to be on the bench. She'll, to, she will be on the bench, whether she chooses to recuse herself or not, we don't know yet, but she'll be there on November 10th, when uh, the Affordable Care Act is argued in front of the uh, court, the issue, of course, is that when the individual mandate was eliminated, the Trump administration and attorneys general around the country, including our own Chris Carr, said that once you eliminate the individual mandate, essentially ACA falls apart. It's no longer constitutional. And that may be what the court has to to look at, Andy. So, although it's not a direct election issue right now, if for some reason the Supreme Court decides to undo the Affordable Care Act, it will be up to the next president and the next Congress to figure out what to do about health care for Americans. Andy, take it from there. Well, the Affordable Care Act, I mean, there were more than 50 attempts to repeal it in Congress. Uh, we, we had that John McCain uh, uh, dramatic vote to uh, kill the last repeal attempt. Uh, and it's been trucking along in terms of covering millions of people and protecting people with pre-existing conditions and doing uh, a, a lot of good things uh, in terms of health care. And so uh, the court uh, will be looking at it again, the individual mandate being the issue and whether if, if, if that is no longer the case, then will it be, should it be unconstitutional? Uh, there are a couple issues with that. One is, uh, uh, what is the uh, Republican plan to replace it? And in fact, uh, you know, th- there really hasn't been one. And so, uh, you know, these attorneys general are uh, pursuing this case while there, there's there's nothing out there that they suggest to 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 take its place. Uh, and and so the court will. Uh, will decide. And if they throw the whole thing out, then it will be uh, a hard lift for Congress and a new president to uh, replace it in, in, I don't know what period of time we're talking about, but uh, it, you know, there are millions of people who get coverage through this law. Uh, There are people like my kids who got coverage up to age 26 on their parents' plan. That was another part of the ACA. The ACA has cut uh, Medicare drug costs for many seniors. And uh, without this law, it it would be a shock to the health care system for sure. It's particularly stunning that in the midst of this unprecedented pandemic, um, 
that we, we not only have the um, president of the administration, but attorneys generals from states across the country, including Georgia, uh, that are actively working to strip away the protections provided by the Affordable Care Act. Um, I think to Andy's point, there are you know 20 million people that have gotten coverage uh, through either Medicaid or the individual uh, health insurance marketplace, including about 500,000 in Georgia. Um, at a time when um, people are developing new pre-existing conditions uh, by virtue of having had COVID, which could, if the if the ACA is is undermined by the by the Supreme Court, uh, could make them uh, ineligible to get individual policies um, at a time where the, the safety net for affordable uh, health insurance for those losing their coverage because of the economic crisis um, is, 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 is so incredibly important and needed. It, it's just uh, truly unbelievable. Um, and, and it's also unbelievable that not only the president, but, but uh, our, our current senators um, are politicking on their commitment to um, protecting pre-existing um, the, the, the condition exclusions um, at the same time that uh, you know they're they're actively supporting a, a Supreme Court case that will take it away. I mean, I, I, I as you could tell, I'm I'm searching for words to find a reasonable way to understand this. Ariel, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating. Um, Trump's uh, or the president's um, head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services was here the other week, and uh, she said Donald Trump will always protect pre-existing conditions. And you can see things both ways, but that is simply not what he has done. It is not what. Um, our senators uh, have done in their votes. There, there is no backup to the protection for pre-existing conditions that is currently enshrined in law in the Affordable Care Act. You can make one if you want to. That is not what has happened so far. Uh, but the Affordable Care Act is far more than that. It's 900 pages long. I think most people have no idea how broad it was. It, it's a mammoth piece of law that made changes to every part of the healthcare system. There, there were all kinds of initiatives that were underway that got put into the Affordable Care Act. And if you repeal um, or overturn rather the entire law, which we don't know if that's what the court is going to do, the court may decide that this one piece of it is what they call severable, that you can say, well, the individual mandate uh, has been gutted and so that is no longer a tax and that is no longer law. But as Congress said, the rest of it can be severed from that piece, and that's still law. They can decide that. But if they don't, which is what Georgia's attorney general and Texas and the Trump administration are asking them to do, then all of these pieces that affect nursing homes, that affect um, protections, that affect the lifetime cap not existing on employer health insurance plans anymore, all of that is gone. The, to me, one of the more remarkable things about the Affordable Care Act is the, I guess, the arc of the political uh, conversation about it and the political um, attacks and support of it. Because if you recall, I mean, we keep calling it the Affordable Care Act, but Republicans deemed it Obamacare and Democrats finally, um, you know, adopted that terminology. Biden apparently wants to 
changed that a little bit to his plan, which he sort of oddly mentioned Biden care the other night in the debate. But I mean, it was labeled <laughs> Obamacare because Republicans attacked it from every uh, corner as unaffordable, as, as a huge mistake, as intruding on your health care and all of that. And then as things went along, polling indicated things like people hated Obamacare, but they, when you asked them about individual provisions, right, Andy, you'll remember this, they loved them, some of the ones you mentioned. And now we're in a place where... Um, the the lawsuits, all this anti-affordable health care movement by Republicans in particular has gone along through the court and on and on and on. Um, and here we are with what amounts to a somewhat popular piece of law that's going to be undone. Right, Andy? That's correct. And, you know, let's just imagine a scenario uh, upcoming where uh, the Republicans either hold the White House or hold the Senate. Uh, how, if the law gets thrown out, how do you reach a compromise and a solution and a replacement plan when the politics would be divided like that? I mean, we, it, it took decades of trying before Oba, uh, President Obama and a solidly Democratic Congress came up with this law. And if this gets thrown out and there's still political division, uh, it would be a tremendously heavy lift to replace it. So, again, we have to make clear that, of course, the ACA is now going to be in the breast of the Supreme Court. Uh, and But, again, if there need to be changes made based on whatever the Supreme Court rules, and although it's going to be argued on November 10th, it is unlikely the court will release its decision until next spring when they typically release all of their decisions. But the composition of both houses of Congress and the White House will be in play in terms of whatever needs to be done legislatively to th take the next steps. Have I got that basically right, Ariel? That's right. That's right. Um, so the the court hears it's in the October um, session, and, and it'll hear the arguments. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely enough, the week after the election, um, and and so that won't affect the course of the case itself, the court will decide what it wants to decide regardless of how the election turns out. Um, but if it does something that changes the law, then that will put the issue back squarely in Congress. Harry, I think I'm right that we have about half a million Georgians who are up, uh, getting health care from the federal exchanges at this point. So if it, you know, if there are changes in that, I mean, I guess I'm asking you a broader question. Uh, well, without that protection, what, what happens to the health care of Georgians? Um, with, without that protection, you potentially have half a million people uh, and, 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 and more, because realize that the, that the number of people who, who have and, and, and will lose uh, jobs as a result of this pandemic um, it isn't over. But, but you have people who have pre-existing conditions who now have a plan that not only um, covers them without, without bias, so without charging more because of those pre-existing conditions, but also provides subsidies based on their income to help make it more affordable. Uh, and that would be lost. But, but I think the other thing to keep in mind is that um, we, we, we ourselves, and when I say we ourselves, I say uh, action by our state um, is also undermining um, some of those very protections based on the uh, recent waiver 
that was approved um, by, by CMS uh, to, to change the way the individual marketplace works uh, in, in our state. Uh, a, 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 another thing that would likely be looked at differently uh, whether there be a change in the administration at the federal level. Yeah, and we will uh, at some point uh, deep, do a deeper dive after the election into what the waivers uh, potentially will mean for the people of Georgia. But Kevin, I know you want to make a last remark before we get to a break. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do this when we get back. But, you know, an aerial story the other day, um, you know, she had a, a source that, that argued uh, everyone's pretending that the court will decide something and uh, the, everything will change in one day. And there is a feeling that there would be this transitional period. I mean, how much confidence, Ariel, you know, after talking, reporting that story, do you have in that happening? You know, I, I think there's uh, Kevin, no way to know at this point. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt because I've got to get the final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I'll let you take a shot at that question, Ariel. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Uh, just a couple of quick program notes before we continue our conversation. First, I want to make sure you all know that on next Tuesday night, November 3rd, starting at uh, basically 7 o'clock, uh, Political Rewind is going to be bringing you uh, analysis and uh, returns from statewide and local races as the returns come into us, will be part of NPR's coverage that evening, which does uh, start at 7. We'll do local cut-ins uh, with some of our analysts uh, from the Political Rewind panel. We'll talk to reporters from the AJC and from GPB News as well. And then at 10 o'clock, we're going to do a special edition of Political Rewind in which we'll break down what we know at that hour about things like both U.S. Senate races, the congressional races with particular attention on the 6th and 7th District in Metro Atlanta. We'll look at legislative races where uh, control of the Georgia House could be uh, at stake. So I hope you'll join us starting at 7 next Tuesday night for Political Rewind's coverage and NPR's coverage of the 2020 elections. Okay, uh, Ariel, uh, Kevin pointed out your article uh, on ACA and the challenge to ACA uh, isn't going to mean an immediate change. I mean, we're going to see a gradual uh, change if things are going to happen at all, right? Yeah, I had a, a source. Uh, he's a he's a fellow who opposes the uh, Affordable Care Act intrusion into the private market, and he was making that case. And I, I think certainly it's really impossible to imagine that the court will read out its decision um, one day and that afternoon all plans will cease. What's more likely is that you'll have some kind of um, some kind of space, whether that's a minute or a year, who knows, but generally it would require um, folks taking action. And, you know, you wouldn't have the insurance companies just suddenly canceling all these policies. They're making a lot of profit now on the Affordable Care Act. It, they finally figured out um, the market and it's successful now. It's all stabilized. What might be possible, I suppose, is that you know, maybe somebody would, uh, you know, you've got an expensive cancer patient who files their 50 millionth claim and the insurance company says, actually, um, you know, the, the court says we no longer have to honor, um, 
we we can now reimpose lifetime caps, and so we're not gonna we're not gonna cover that expense. So it's it's impossible to know. I think the better answer is nobody is planning for it. Nobody has a plan for what happens if it goes away. Okay, I want to take up one more uh, health care issue that uh, is at stake to some extent in this election. But but before I go to that, let me tell you, if you're really interested in seeing the differences between Biden and Trump on health care issues, the Kaiser Family Foundation has a terrific slideshow that they've created with the most basic uh, differences. I'm, I will put a link to that up on uh, our website at some point when we post the show uh, later this morning. So you can look at, at the very at the many uh, differences that exist between the two candidates. But Andy, um, once again, we turn to the Supreme Court. We know that with Barrett on the court, we have a 6-3 conservative majority. And there are those who think Roe v. Wade could be in the balance. And the Georgia case, uh, the governor's uh, law, which now essentially outlaws abortion in Georgia, could be one of the cases the court takes up. Okay, again, that is in the breast of the court. But, but if the court takes any dramatic action on Roe, it will then again be up to the legislature and the White House to take action on their own. So, yes, it's in the Supreme Court, but the results of this election could have an impact on what comes after any decision to alter Roe, right? Well, that's correct. And it may, if if uh, the court strikes it down, it, it may come back to states, individual states, what they're going to, whether they're going to outlaw abortion or uh, allow it. And uh, we can see a scenario, if that's the case, where uh, low-income women uh, would there would be definitely an access to to care problem in in some states, including many here in the South. Well, and just, to, just so to be clear, again, Kevin, it, oh Harry, do you want to jump in real quick? I was just going to say, just to, just to be clear, there 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 is an access to care problem already, uh, based based on actions that have already been taken taken uh, both in terms of state legislative action. Uh, in regard to, to abortion and, and, and restricting uh, numbers of, of, of clinics where those services are provided, but also uh, more dramatically um, uh, an assault on access to reproductive health care for low-income women through uh, executive order by this administration in terms of the use of Title X funding, um, which is a critical tool to provide access for low-income women. So, so again, this would just be uh, further erosion of, of, of access to reproductive health care for women. Bill, I also think there's a chance that Georgia could, uh, if the court were to, uh, uh, you know, rule against the uh, precedent of Roe versus v. Wade, Georgia could end up being one of the states where the drama is played out in, in some of the most important ways. Because on one hand, there's this sense that the state is shifting blue. I think we just lost uh, Kevin Riley, so uh, I apologize. For, oh, you're back. Go ahead, Kevin. We lost you for a minute. You know, I'm, the best point I've made all day, and you lost me, uh, so we'll, I'll try to do Go do ahead. Better make again. it again. <laughs> I think that Georgia could turn out to be a place where the uh, 
with this kind of stuff around abortion plays out in very dramatic ways. Because on one hand, Democrats remain optimistic they can capture majorities in the legislature. Republicans seem confident they can hang on. If the Democrats were to capture it, and we have a Democratic legislature but a Republican governor, a lot of conflict there. If the Republicans hang on and they get to draw all of those districts for the next 10 years, they can make sure, virtually make sure, that they will maintain control and and be able to maintain the law as they see it and as their constituents want it. So I think this decision is a big deal in Georgia. Um, Ariel? Yeah, no, absolutely. Just echoing what Kevin said, it's a very big deal in Georgia. Georgians on both sides feel really strongly about it. And, um, and the politics of it probably have never been more important um, because, again, this is another one where a, a more conservative court is going to give more deference to state legislatures, state executives, and whoever the voters of Georgia put in those seats are going to be making these decisions. Um, we've only got about three minutes left in the show today, but but before we finish, um, Harry, you're a public policy uh, a guy. You you understand public health in terms of policy uh, in a, in a really uh, acute way. Um, what what else should we be looking at in terms of concerns? We've talked a little bit about abortion, talked about ACA, obviously talked about dealing with COVID nineteen. Uh, what are a couple of the other things we really ought to be paying attention to in terms of health issues and the election? Well, I guess to turn back to COVID-19 for a minute, um, I, I think one of the things that is lost in the conversation is how we as a country have failed to invest in public health, have failed to invest in public health infrastructure, in public health workforce. Uh, it's true across the country. Uh, and it's especially true since the 2008 uh, economic downturn, um, the, the number of people employed in local and state public health has been dramatically cut down. That has that devastated our ability to respond to what we knew was coming. I mean, we knew a pandemic was coming. I mean, it was something that uh, the George W. Bush administration knew. It was something that was passed on from the Obama administration. So, so no surprise. So one of the things that stands out to me in the Biden plan um, is not only a desire to lean in to um, public health experts, but also language that says that even as we respond, we must prepare for the next crisis. And I think that's really got to be true, right. regardless of the outcome. We're really going to short on time. Andy, get, you get a quick chance at this. And Ariel, I hope we give you one, too. Health and health care have been, uh, over the last 20, 30 years, have been big political issues in every election. Look what happened in 2018 when Congress shifted in the House because of health care being a leading issue. And it's a big, big deal for families who are spending more of their income on health and health care then their wages are increasing and and it's it's more than inflation. So this is a kitchen table issue and it's a huge political issue. Yeah, I don't Ariel, I don't real quick. Ever, yeah, I don't think it's ever been more important. I, I almost think that if the election goes one way or the other this uh, November, it will be a referendum on health care. Thank you for your quick response. We're out of time. Ariel Hart, Kevin, Riley, Andy, Miller, Dr. Harry Hyman, thank you all so much for being here today. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back tomorrow. 
Between now and then, do me a favor, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please go out and get a flu shot. See you tomorrow.